Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 tonight, we remember this is God's word. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads of this, the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming in the with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was and who, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned round to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash round his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a surface, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he set, held seven stars, and out of his mouth came, seven, uh, came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Amen. We trust that God will give us understanding of his words this evening. Well, let's open our Bibles together to Revelation chapter 1, page 1233. And as we 
try to sort of get our heads into this book, let me ask you to imagine yourself uh, in an ancient situation. Imagine that you're a tradesman, maybe a carpenter, and you're in a town in, in Western Turkey in, in 90 AD, more than 1900 years ago. And you and your family are Christians, and you've been Christians for some time, and while you've always been in the minority in your society, things recently have become uh, increasingly difficult. In order to work as a carpenter, you need to uh, be part of the Carpenters Guild. It's a little bit like a trade union. And uh, you've just been expelled from the Carpenters Guild because it was noticed that you did not attend the annual guild meeting where all the carpenters gather together and worship Heracles, ask for his blessing, Greek God, ask for his blessing upon their business. And as a result, most of your trade has just dried up overnight. You come home and you tell this to your wife and she tells you that the local baker had just refused to serve her, saying that it is the fault of Christians that there hasn't been any rain for six months. And she's had to walk right across town to get bread and she's not known over there. And to add to that, a new statue of the emperor Domitian has just been erected in the town square. All who pass by it are expected to bow before it because Domitian has proclaimed himself to be a god. And you hear that there's likely to be an unveiling ceremony where all of the population of your town will be expected to come and bow down. That could mean imprisonment or even worse if you refuse. And so that night you hardly sleep. Uh, you don't know what to do and you contemplate just going along with the crowd and, and letting your Christianity lapse for a little while. But next day happens to be the Lord's Day and you uh, attend a little church with your wife, a church that's meeting in one of the larger homes in the town. And that very day, a remarkable letter, a, a revelation, an apocalypse, a, a vision called revelation from the apostle John is read out. It takes about an hour and a half. It's, it's, it's doing the rounds in the, the local churches. The churches are getting it and making copies and sending it on. And as you listen to these incredible word pictures, you know what you're going to do. And you catch your wife's eye and you squeeze your ha her hand and you, you know that she knows what you're going to do together. Whatever is coming, whatever it costs, by God's grace, you're going to be faithful to Jesus Christ, who is coming on the clouds, and every eye will see him. That might help us get into the, the skin, as it were, of those who heard Revelation for the first time. That's the sort of situation they were in. Revelation has been a book that has fascinated Christians down through the years. Some people have given up at the complex images. They struggle to understand it. Some become sort of fixated with it, thinking that it's going to tell them uh, who the next uh, president of the European Union is going to be or whatever it might be. And I hope as soon as we, uh, as we look at it over these next weeks, we're going to find it, like those first Christians, a real encouragement to us because that is what it was designed to do. It was designed to encourage Christians 
who are under pressure not to give up and indeed to warn them of the consequences of giving up. Even if it is hard, Jesus Christ is Lord and is to be followed with all that we have and all that we are. It is a particular type of letter. It is an apocalypse. That, that word in verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, is literally the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And it just means that it is a particular type of literature which we will explore as we go through it. And, and one of the things that we ought to understand is that it is, it is dominated by symbolism. And, and, and it's symbolism that the, the first readers would have been pretty familiar with. They wouldn't have struggled to understand it quite in the same way that we might. But we're going to have to work just a little bit harder to understand it. We should know, however, that as well as being a book for those first Christians 1,900 years ago, it's also very firmly a book for us. Verse 4 tells us that it is addressed to the seven churches in Asia. You see that they're listed there in verse 11. And um, we, we will see the letters in chapters 2 and 3. We think they're, they're sort of part of the postal route. Uh, this is the uh, the, the, where these churches are, it was reckoned that around this time, the end of the first century, this was the, the, the this was the Bible Belt of the world. This was where most of the Christians were, uh, and uh, they, they think that, that perhaps this is sort of where that the postman would have gone from Patmos. John was in Patmos, and postman would have gone around this particular area. But these were also sort of administrative centers, and and therefore the the, the letter would have been copied in these places and and distributed. So they were a little bit like presbyteries almost. As we will see, however, there are seven of them, and the number seven is very significant within the book. It sort of signifies completeness or wholeness, perfection perhaps. And so the fact that there are seven churches, while these were real churches with real issues, they also represent the complete church, the church in every age. And so what this is saying to us is that this is telling us about problems that will affect the church all of the time, from Christ walked on earth until Christ returns again. And so the great question of Revelation is, even though it is hard to follow Jesus, will you be faithful? Will you overcome? That's a word that, that appears in the letter from time to time. Remember at the Revelation 21, 7, we often read it, he who overcomes will inherit all this. I will be his uh, God and he, or, or, and uh, uh, I will be his God. God says this, I will be his God and he will be my son. And so that's the question. When it's hard, when it costs, Will you follow Jesus and overcome? And if your intention is to do that by God's grace, then this book is just full of encouragement. It's just saying, keep going. You're on the right side. But if your intention is to turn away, then this book is full of warnings. It, it assures you of God's blessing and, and, and presence as you're faithful. It warns you of judgment and discipline if you turn away. Just as in the Old Testament, if uh, God sets out the, the blessings and curses of the covenant, uh, blessings of following him, the curses of turning from him, so here Christ has blessings and curses, encouragements and warnings. 
Now, this book is going to be important for us, first of all, because it's going to take us to Christ. Christ is on every page, and it's all about his triumph. I had that little picture up of the, the triumphant lamb. I'm not sure where that's from. It's a, a carving uh, somewhere. When, when I grew up in Kilkeel, as a little aside, I, I went to a Sunday school in the Alfred Eady Hall, which is now a gym, oddly. But uh, there it was. Uh, and, and on the stage, we used to sit in, in rows for the Sunday school to start. And on the stage, there were three sort of crests. I can't remember what uh, the middle one was. One was a burning bush because uh, it was Presbyterian uh, Sunday school. But the, the, uh, one of them was a conquering lamb. And uh, it was a lamb with a, with a cross and a, a little pendant, a flag on it. It looked like an English flag. Uh, and uh, it was from, the words around it were from Revelation. Our lamb has conquered. And then said underneath, let us follow him. That was the symbol of the Moravian church, which was one of the very early Reformation churches, which actually planted a church in Kilkeel. There was an early a church there. So, so this idea of the conquering lamb, a very strong symbol within Christian history. And, and this book is going to keep us focused on the lamb who conquers, the triumph of the lamb. But it's also going to be helpful for us because we need to hear of Christ's victory and the importance of clinging to him and going his way. Because we know that in some parts of the world, our brothers and sisters are paying a terrible price for their faithfulness to the Lord Jesus. Over the last years, we too have seen a big shift in the position of Christianity within our culture. It's not like it is in other places within the world as far as persecution is concerned, but nevertheless, haven't we felt the winds of change so very, very significantly? The speed of the moral revolution has been absolutely astonishing. And so Christians with orthodox views are finding themselves being pushed to the margins of society. That's behind almost every religious headline that you'll see on the BBC. One person I heard recently put this well. She said this, what was once celebrated is despised. What was once despised is now celebrated. And those who refuse to celebrate are despised. Think of that in connection with marriage, for example. Do we have um, traditional marriage, marriage for everyone, independent of whether it's a, a male and a female? What was once celebrated is despised. What was once despised is now celebrated. Those who refuse to celebrate are despised. And, and, and just as it was in the days of Revelation, it, it seems that the state is increasingly willing to side itself against the church with legislation and pressure. And it's impossible to see how things will develop, of course, but, but I think most of us would imagine that it is going to become more difficult to follow Jesus in the days to come, more costly. And so the question is going to be for us, like those early Christians, will you follow Jesus and overcome? 
Well, where does it start? Maybe we know that Revelation 2 and 3 contain the letters to the seven churches, which address the issues directly that they're facing, and they bring the encouragements and rebukes as appropriate. But that's not really where the book begins. It begins with a vision of Jesus. We would do well to look at the, the introduction, the prologue, and the greetings, and so on. We'll refer to them a little bit. But we're going to move fairly quickly into the later part of chapter 1, and we're going to see a vision of Jesus. Because what this is saying to us, even in the way that it is structured, is, is, is before we even need to know what it is Jesus says to us, we need to know who Jesus is. We need to know that he is the majestic and the glorious one, and we need to see that he is greater and more wonderful than we could ever imagine. And when we're under pressure, we need to know that he is great. So let's look at chapter 1 and what it tells us about Jesus. First of all, Jesus glory. Jesus is glorious. So John is in exile on Patmos, little island about 45 miles off the Turkish coast. He's an old man. He's probably in his 90s at this stage. We're told in verse 10 that he's a, in the Lord's day on a Sunday. He's in the Spirit. It means that he's being visited by the Holy Spirit in a particular way for the particular purpose of communicating a vision to him. It's the same sort of thing that happens to Old Testament prophets from time to time. And he hears a, a voice like a trumpet telling him to write what he sees. So although this is a vision, it's pictorial, it is communicated to us through words. It's absolutely appropriate that it would be so God said that that's how it should be. And, and John turns and he sees Jesus. Now, John has seen Jesus a lot. He's spent three years with him. On one occasion, of course, he saw him transfigured at the top of the mountain. There he saw Jesus in his glory. And what he sees here and now is much more like the Jesus at the top of the mountain than the Jesus that he went fishing with and walked through the countryside with. It is the glorified Jesus. Revelation shows us the glorified Jesus, uh, and, and it describes him in these amazing pictures. It leaves us in no doubt that he is glorious. Hey, look at what it says, one like the Son of Man. You see that in verse 13, uh, and among the lampstands was someone like a Son of Man. Revelation's absolutely full of Old Testament imagery. That's where we need to to be familiar with, to understand it properly. It, it never actually quotes the Old Testament, but it alludes to it hundreds and hundreds of times. And, and this uh, Son of Man reference is a reference back to Daniel chapter 7. Keep your finger in Revelation chapter 1 and turn back to Revelation chapter 7 with me to uh, page 892 if you've got one of the Pew Bibles. The later part of Daniel is also apocalyptic literature, uh, full of visions and, and uh, things that we might find a little bit odd, uh, but they have lots of parallels with Revelation. So Daniel chapter 7, page 892, look at verse 9. Uh, Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, page 892. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took a seat. The Ancient of Days uh, seems to be uh, God, God the Father, God. Uh, and the Ancient of Days took a seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were open. 
Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was sent and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Who's that? Well, it's obviously the Lord Jesus. It's the name that Jesus takes to use for himself often within the gospel. So, so John sees one like a son of man. But his vision goes on. He's in a, a robe reaching down to his feet with a sash around his chest. Sorry to disappoint some of you, but uh, this probably means that he's dressed in the robes of a high priest. Later in verse 16, we, we see that he has a sword coming out of his mouth. He speaks God's word. So he, he's dressed as a priest. He speaks God's word. He he, he is functioning as a prophet all the way through this book. We see that he is the great king. So here you see John sees Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. He goes on to describe him in his appearance, this vision. Uh, his hair is white as wool. Now, that also takes us back to Daniel 7, you remember. But the thing is there, who is described as having hair as white as wool? It is God, the ancient of days. So, so John is saying, I looked at Jesus, he looked like God. His feet are like burnished bronze, eminently suitable to tread upon his enemies. His voice is like the sound of rushing water. That's a picture of great power, isn't it? Where I grew up, there used to be a small river at the bottom of our garden. It was about 10 feet wide. It wasn't very big and, and it just came straight off the mountain, however, about a mile up to, to uh, the, the moorland that went up to Binion. And when it rained heavily, it became an absolute torrent. And I have lots and lots of childhood memories of going down and looking at this tame little river that was only eight or 10 inches deep normally, many feet deep, moving boulders along, and the roar, you couldn't shout over it. Jesus' voice is like that. It's also a reference to Ezekiel 124, where the voice of God is likened to the sound of rushing waters. So you see what this picture is telling us. Jesus has the, the appearance of God about him. It's underlined in so many ways, his, his divinity. Uh, you notice that the Almighty God says in verse 8 that he is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last letters of the uh, uh, Greek alphabet. And yet here in verse 17, Jesus says he's the first and the last. You see, divinity written all over him. And his face is like the sun that would have reminded John of the transfiguration, wouldn't it? So there's no question about who this Jesus is. He is God. He is the one whose glory is unimaginable. Well, what do you do whenever you see a Jesus like this? Well, in verse 17, we find that John falls at his feet as though dead. He cannot stand the presence of Jesus' majesty. He cannot stand in the presence of Jesus' majesty. Now, you see, let's think about this a little bit. When we think of Jesus, when we sing about Jesus, when we, when we use the, the name of Jesus, 
the, the, the images that tend to jump into my mind, I don't know about you, I'm sure it's true for you too, is of his incarnate life. Time when he walked on the earth. Time that the gospels tell us about. When he teaches and heals and welcomes children and is gentle with the penitent. And Jesus is all of that. But he's also the one with a voice like rushing waters and with eyes that blaze like fire and with a face like the sun. And we need to think of him like that too. For this is not a Jesus that you can treat lightly. It's not a Jesus that you can be indifferent to. This is a Jesus before whom we fall. And yet you see that even as John does that, what does this Jesus do? He, he puts his hand upon him and he speaks the first recorded words of Jesus in the book. Do not be afraid. How gracious. How we should rejoice in that. As if he is saying, I will enable you, John, to live in the presence of my majesty. Do not be afraid. Notice he doesn't say, don't fall before me. It's entirely appropriate. The one who really knows Jesus, I hope you know this, the one who really knows Jesus knows that we may be on our faces before him even as we are assured of his welcome and forgiveness. Jesus in his glory. Do you know anything of this? Get to know him better. He will reward your investment. He is bigger than you can imagine. Jesus is glorious. Jesus is in control. That's, the, that's where we're going secondly. Sometimes the, the picture that, that we give of Jesus as we think about him and talk about him is rather like an anxious parent at their child's first football match. You know how that is. You can see those moms and dads walking up and down the sidelines anxiously uh, shouting a few words of encouragement and, and wringing their hands as, as little Johnny is about to get the shins kicked out of him. And to all intents and purposes, they, they are, are really uh, concerned for him, but, but they're really powerless to affect what's going on. Nothing could be further from the truth as we think about this Lord Jesus. You see how, how John speaks of him as he greets his readers back in verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, who's the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. He's absolutely in control. He is the king. His kingship is not diminished by the fact that there is rebellion within his kingdom and in his creation, for, for he knows exactly what he is doing and exactly what will happen. And then you see what Jesus says whenever he speaks to John in verse 17. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. There's no question in Jesus' mind about who he is. He is the one who has conquered death. He now holds the keys of death and hell. Can you imagine if you are that carpenter in that first century world 
who has seen some of your friends carted off and burned in the uh, amphitheater somewhere. To hear those words that, that, that Jesus holds the keys of death and hell, how reassuring that is. As if to say, if, if death puts its hands upon you and entraps you, Jesus says, I have the keys for that. You'll be out in a moment. You see, the church that grew in the face of persecution believed that. And the church that is growing today in the face of persecution believes that. And the question is, if it gets tough for us, will we believe that? So you can see that you can trust Jesus with your future. There is nothing coming at you or me that he cannot cope with, even death. John describes him in verse 5 as the firstborn from the dead. He has gone ahead of us through death. We will be raised with him. His power and control, magnificent. Third thing, final thing, Jesus' presence. This is a tremendous picture of Jesus that we're getting here. And the question might arise, well, where is he? He's in heaven, of course. John is seeing into the courts of heaven but, but he sees more than that. Verse 12, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. So Jesus is among the lampstands. In verse 20, we find that the lampstands are the seven churches. And in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, we, we, say, we see that Jesus walks among the seven lampstands. In other words, where is Jesus? Well, he's in his church. He's walking amongst his church. He's in the midst of it. He's present with it. Remember we said that Jesus is dressed as the, the priest, as the high priest. One of the, the jobs of the priest in the tabernacle was to tend the flame burning on the seven-pronged candlestick, the lampstand, the, the menorah. And here is Jesus tending the witness of his church, guarding its witness, as he speaks words of encouragement to it, words of warning to the unfaithful. He is the faithful witness, as John says in verse 5, and he calls his church to be a faithful witness too. So you see how important and precious the church is to Jesus. It is the focus of what he is doing on earth. He is in the church. He is here with us. Now again, as those beleaguered believers felt the church to be under such pressure in those early days. What an encouragement it was for them to hear this. Jesus is walking amongst the lampstands. He has not abandoned the church. He guards your witness. And we should know that too. When our church is under pressure in our culture to simply be like the culture, to bow down to the idols that it has constructed, Christ is in our midst, encouraging our faithfulness and warning against our apostasy. So you see this church then, under pressure, desperately needs guidance and direction and all sorts of things, and yet the first thing that Revelation does is to set before it 
the Lord Jesus Christ, and this is who Jesus is, glorified and in control and attending his church. When you pray tonight, think of this, Jesus. Now, if we're here tonight as believers, this is the Jesus to whom we have been brought. John reminds us of this back in verse 5, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. That's, that's reflective of the Exodus in the Old Testament, just as God's people were set free from bondage in Egypt, Egypt to, to meet with God and to serve him. So we've been set free from our sin to serve the Lord. He has done this for us. He has made us his own. And there's no question that, that, that if we have been brought to Jesus we've been brought to the side of the one who will triumph. Verse 7 tells us that. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. You see, one day there's going to be no question about who is victorious. All the earth will see him. Some will worship with wonder and great joy. Some will mourn. Through this book, it's going to be really, really clear. You're either for Jesus or against him. There's no fence with him or without him. And those who have rejected him, who have persecuted his people, those who've been quietly indifferent to him, whatever it might be, they will mourn. Can you imagine can you imagine what it would be like to see this Jesus coming with the clouds and to know that for you there was only wrath? To know that you would never hear him say, do not be afraid. Are there some of us who need to buy now before we see him. Acknowledge him as king and Lord just so that we see him and we hear his welcome. We feel a hand upon our shoulder and a word of assurance that echoes through eternity. Let's pray that as we Consider these things. God will be at work within our hearts. Let's pray together. Lord, we confess that, that as we think of our Lord Jesus, our vision is too small, our pictures too black and white, for this Jesus is greater and more marvelous than we could ever imagine. Lord, thank you for your word. And we, we pray that, that as we would wrestle with it, you will elevate Jesus in our minds and that you will give us desire in our hearts and determination in our wills that we might overcome with him. And we pray in Jesus' name.